Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Having believed in the permanence of salvation for 46 years, Dan Gallagher recently changed his mind to believe in what he calls continuance in faith, or CIF. That's the idea that those who fail to continue in the faith can be lost. The whole process took about 14 years from the time when he first read a book that introduced him to a number of difficult verses to interpret from a once saved, always saved perspective to when he finally just recently changed his mind on this and was a co-author of a massive 114-page research paper on the subject. Here is the account of how he came to a new understanding on this issue and why he thinks it's so important. Here now is interview 33, Can You Lose Your Salvation? with Dan Gallagher. Well, Dan Gallagher, thank you so much for taking the time out today to talk to me on Restitutio. It is my privilege, Sean. I'm looking forward to this. I've heard so much about you and seen some of your videos online and was really nice to meet you in person last summer at the national conference there you uh you're much larger in real life than uh, (laughs) it's like man this guy is tall Uh, that was that was great but uh i thought maybe today we could start with the question how did you come to christ in the first place it's probably a pretty typical story of a uh of an irishman is i was raised in a roman catholic family and um Went to parochial school, and from my earliest memories of being involved, uh, my family was very involved in our parish, and I come from a long line of history of priests and nuns, and I was the oldest boy, so I was kind of groomed in my family that the oldest boy in a traditional Irish Catholic family becomes a priest. Oh. So so it, was, uh, it, was, it wasn't necessarily something that, you know, I ever really actually seriously entertained, but... I know at a young age I came to Christ, and so, you know, definitely I left the Catholic faith uh, decades ago to the chagrin of my parents. My dad always said to his dying deathbed that uh, I would have made a great priest, but the fact of the matter is I kept reminding him I was a Protestant minister, and I don't think that went over well. (laughs) (laughs) You were predestined to become a priest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, using a typical Calvinistic term, I guess you could say that's true. Um, It was when I was 18 years old that I went away to college, and that's when I actually got exposed to uh, a lot of people in the dorms and stuff of different faiths. And so that kind of put me on a search, and it was through that process that I actually ran into a group, eventually went through um, a lot of their uh, biblical classes, and um, that pretty much set me on the path uh, that I've been pursuing most of my adult life now. Okay, very good. So how long ago was that? Well, I'm 64, so it was, uh, you know, 18 from 64, 46 years ago. 46 years ago. And yeah. uh, you've been standing for the Lord ever since. Um, yeah, I, I would like to say um, I've been standing strong, but the fact of the matter is I've had some hiccups and ups and downs too, and... Uh, um, actually had uh, went through a, a season where, um, you know, really struggled there for a while. 
and that's a whole other story. But I can literally tell you that the uh, the Lord redeemed me from jails. And uh, at one time, I was facing seventeen felony counts, and uh, and fifty 17. years, seventeen felony counts, and fifty plus years in federal prison. And uh, the Lord redeemed me from all of it. I stand here today as a man with no criminal history. Wow. Also, because of some uh, mistakes that I made, I was very bitter when uh, when certain things fell apart in my life. And um, that ended up with me having a $5.1 million judgment against me. And today, I have nothing. The Lord completely cleared me and put me in an entirely different direction. So... My path has not been uh, one where I've been a saint. I've recognized it's only by the grace of God in my life that I stand here today. I got to find out about those stories. Maybe some other time, huh? Uh, it's it's a it's a good story. It's it's one in which I can truly say that uh, God is gracious and full of mercy. Well, maybe next time. But for today, okay. we got to talk about this doctrine: once saved, always saved. So maybe you could tell me. The first time you heard about it and how it struck you, did it make sense? Was it confusing? Was it something you just automatically accepted uncritically, or what was it like for you? Well, when I was 18 and was searching, I I came across a group, uh, many biblical Unitarians are familiar with it, it's called The Way Ministry, and I went through a number of their classes, and I, I, I really embraced their doctrine and didn't know anything other than what they taught versus Roman Catholicism. It was very appealing to me because I realized that salvation was by grace, not through works. And and I, I readily accepted the message that they said that once you were saved, conf- confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, believing God raised him from the dead, that you were, you know, they rely on Romans 10, 9 and 10, and that you were, quote, saved, um, as in a, a past tense, and, uh, and that was it. So... I embraced all of the arguments that they put forth, which primarily are, you know, that you're born of God. And if you're born, you can't be unborn. Uh, You have incorruptible seed, meaning nothing can ever change that. We're considered children of God, uh, terms that I know you're familiar with, Sean, uh, adoption. That uh, the logic of Romans 8.15 and others is that, in fact, it was it was strongly pointed out that if you're adopted in the Roman system, they would teach that you could not be unadopted. That also that we're new creations in Christ, and if something's created, it can't be uncreated. We're justified, so nothing can change what God has done. And you know, a lot of those common arguments. One of them, which I think struck me the most, was the argument that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the uh, yes. the argument that was used a lot was. If you're sealed, they would teach, it's as if being uh, sealing a can, you know, how you we would preserve food inside a jar or a can, yep. and that once it was sealed, it would, if God sealed it, it could not be unsealed. So yeah, on the basis of all that, I, I saw the logic to it, made a lot of sense, and I readily embraced it. Okay, so that those would be some of the main ways it was communicated to you with the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the adoption metaphor, especially comparing the Roman context of that, and uh, some of the other texts about nothing separating you from the love of God, things like that. Correct. Um, Correct. How long did you hold to this belief before you started to question it? Up until 2004, I had been pretty much involved in business. Right around 2000 to 2001, I realized 
I had actually been using what I call my personal gifts and calling for my own enrichment. And I just decided I didn't want to do that anymore. So I decided around that time period, I was going to just become fully active in ministry and walk away from business. I did that, left California, moved to the Midwest and was involved with a ministry that one of the principals when I was there um, handed me a book on Lordship Salvation in 2004. And we kind of had a relationship where he would give me different topics and say, hey, could you research this and then report back and let me know? And I had done that on a number of other topics. But I got this book on Lordship Salvation, which Lordship Salvation primarily promotes that salvation is not a one-time event, but you it's, it's a matter of continuance. And so as I read the book, though, I disagreed with the author and some of the conclusions he was making, but the problem was it left me very unsettled with verses that I had no answer for. And I just had to admit that. So back in 2004, I just had kind of like a rock in my shoe that I could never be comfortable with. And every time I would come across these verses where in reading my Bible, which I do a lot, it just continued to leave me with unsettled feelings. So that just put me on a path where I had to find the answer. So was this more of a back burner issue over the last 14 years? Absolutely. It was, uh, I mean, because, I mean, I've actually taught the permanence of salvation. I've embraced all of those things. And I couldn't get around many of the logical arguments. Um, I it just couldn't put the pieces together. But I, I look at the way... The, the position I have arrived at today is very much like the Greek word of sunesis for understanding. Yes. A sunesis is when rivers converge together. You know, in other words, various patterns of thought will come together and develop into a single position. So for me, coming to the current position I have, which I call continuance in faith, and rejecting the once saved, always saved, was really a matter of a sunesis. A many... Uh, rivers of thought having to come together and converge. And they had to do with the just the basic understanding of what actually is faith. Um, I also had to challenge my overall hermeneutics, meaning, you know, we all come to the Bible with some pre-understandings. Well, I had been schooled, what I call primed, from a dispensational standpoint. Right. Dispensationalism is really, um, you know, there's a a lot of the once saved, always saved that is intertwined with dispensational thought. And so I had to be willing to step back and realize that, wow, there's there's actually different hermeneutical systems that that are out there. And this this process involved me uh, looking and and really examining covenants and covenantalism, which is an entirely different hermeneutical approach. I had to then look at how that is juxtaposed to dispensational thought. I also began to study James Dunn um, and many other authors, and I realized that James Dunn promotes that salvation as a process. Also, I had to realize and, and, and study the new perspective on Paul that Dunn puts out, which then corrected thinking concerning law, you know, what is it with what Paul is actually saying and where did Luther go wrong in what he was espousing concerning the law? 
Um, Luther's perspective was the law was referring to to good works, which is because he was a, a Roman Catholic priest or monk. And actually what Paul is talking about is the Mosaic and Levitical law. And so it just took a, a constant uh, development of all of these things that, that then what happened, the process was, one day I happened to be talking to a good friend of mine, and we don't really get into topics of salvation and once saved, always saved, but I mentioned to him a couple verses I was troubled with, and he responded and said the exact same thing. And he said, you know, that's always bothered me too, and oh, by the way, here's this other verse. And and as we dialogued more, we just kind of said, why don't we start keeping a record of these things, and let's just kind of keep the dialogue going. I had also, since 2004, approached my co-workers. I had a partner in ministry that I would consistently bring verses to, and I say, this just the explanation on this verse doesn't seem to be matching what I'm seeing, and um, actually never got any satisfying answers. So it just continued this process. And uh, eventually, another friend of mine, we were working on another book that I was writing. He was helping me edit. And um, in the process of that book, I became aware that he was questioning the permanence of salvation position. The ministry that I was with termed once saved, always saved as the permanence of salvation. Right. Those two terms being synonymous. And so anyway, uh, the end result was the, my two friends and I uh, decided as we had informal discussions, I realized one day the one common thing that sal- that was consistently being repeated was that salvation was not assured for the person who rejects God and falls away. In other words, if a person has confessed Christ as their Savior, but then becomes what we call an apostate, one who has fallen away, one who rebels against God with a wicked heart of unbelief, that then that person was no longer guaranteed or given assurance of salvation. And that's when all the pieces started to fit together. Another huge piece of the puzzle was when I realized that the once saved, always saved relies on what we call implicit messages of Scripture. So, for instance, when someone says that we have incorruptible seed, we think we know what that means, but it doesn't clearly say what that means. So the proper way to to understand that is implicit scripture has to always be understood in light of the explicit scripture. So where there's places in the scripture that clearly say places like that I know you're familiar with where it says in 1 Corinthians 15 too, by this gospel you are saved, and then that huge conditional word, if hold firmly to the word, if. And we find the same in Colossians 1.22, where it says, you know, that you are reconciled to Christ, and then it gives some more descriptive words, but it says, if you continue in your faith. So to understand incorruptible seed, it has to be understood in light of the clear verses that say salvation isn't once saved, always saved. In other words, it says there, it absolutely is giving us explicit verses that uh, indicate that salvation is conditional in the sense of if you don't continue, if you don't hold firmly. I also realized that 2 Timothy 2.11 is a big one in my mind, where uh, Paul actually quotes and says, if we deny him, he will deny us. 
And and the ministry I was with would always go to the next verses and say, where it reply, refers to Christ being faithful. But him being faithful has to be understood in light of the previous verse about if we deny him, he'll deny us. And that matches Matthew and Mark and other places where Christ clearly said, if you are my sheep, you will hear, you know, and they will obey. And if you, we deny him, he'll deny us before God and the angels. So those are very clear verses that now all of a sudden, words like adoption and birth and all these things, I didn't have any answers for them at the time, but I understood that I wasn't understanding them properly because they had to be understood in light of the clear verses. So what I hear you saying is you had multiple rivers or tributaries that were all coming together. You have dispensationalism coming under question. You have these perseverance texts that are like, at first maybe just a tiny little pebble in the shoe, but then over, over a period you work together with someone else to collect a whole bunch until the shoe got really uncomfortable. And then you had, in looking at some of the once saved, always saved verses, you started to see that there were implicit assumptions that you were bringing in, like in the, in the example you used of 1 Peter one twenty three, where it says that we are born again of imperishable seed. And the implicit assumption there is that that refers to the Holy Spirit or the sealing metaphor that you mentioned before, as opposed to uh, the, the gospel message or the word as it's spoken. So were there any other influencers? I mean, were there people that maybe you saw fall away from their faith and you weren't sure how to deal with that or um, other factors? Well, yes. Actually, I had seen a number of, of people that I had personally brought to Christ that eventually turned some of them, what I referred to them as spiritual couch potatoes, where you know, they they basically not doing anything, not actively walking in their faith. And then I've also got some that have actively rejected Christ and, and become agnostic or atheistic. The other factors were, I, I'm a big reader. And so when I came across Matthew Bates' book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, and began to realize, oh my gosh, there's this whole other aspect that that piece fit with my new embracing of the new covenant. As a dispensationalist, we never actually promoted the new covenant. But when I read the book by uh, Gentry and Wellam on Kingdom Through Covenant, my eyes were just opened and I realized we've made a huge mistake because we're, we're as a dispensationalist, we're putting all this emphasis on what we call the grace administration and that the, you know, the church was born on Pentecost. But the fact of the matter is everything that has happened was a result of Christ initiating a new covenant. Well, then that put me on the path of what are the aspects of that new covenant. And then when I began to see that one of the, the single most significant elements to covenantal relationship is allegiance. It's, a, it's loyalty. And that's something that goes throughout your entire Bible. And God has never allowed disloyalty in any way, shape, or form, even among spiritual beings. You know, we have Satan, who is, quote, called a son of God. You know, in Job, it refers to this as the sons of God came and present themselves, and Satan was found among them. And so God has never tolerated rebellion or rejection of him as the supreme, you know, creator God of, of everything. 
Um, he, he, had, he doesn't tolerate it amongst the spiritual realm, nor, you know, the realm of mankind. So all these pieces began to fit together. And then the last piece that happened for me, one day in reading another book on the prophetic, I realized that almost every word used to describe that the once saved, always saved uses as a, as a basis for proving their position, seed, born, birth, adopted, sons, incorruptible seed, all of those, they're metaphors. And a metaphor is defined as a figure of speech, which is artistic. It's not literal. Right. You were taking it literally. They were taking them literally, but they were applying them in ways in which the context in which they're used was not to, there's no place where those terms are used where the context is about salvation and permanence. The context is uh, faithfulness to the new nature and these things. And so I use uh, in, in a paper, what happened is all of these things came together for my myself and uh, the two other gentlemen, uh, Jerry Werwell and John Truitt, that I was working with. And the ministry that I was with, of course, strongly took the position of once saved, always saved. And so as this became more known that we were questioning this, it was agreed that we would present a position paper. So it actually, I was not able to completely clarify my thoughts and neither were the other two men until um, we produced our paper in January of this year. Uh, we and this worked is on no, this is no five-page paper here. I mean, we're talking about, what, over 100 pages it's it's 114 pages, Sean. But actually, we we eliminated 50 pages uh, from it because we because the purpose of the paper that we produced, which is called Christian Salvation: The Need to Continue in Faith, is the the reason we we wrote that paper was to present it to the the board of directors of the ministry that we were with to give them. We wanted to present it so that they could consider it with the idea that if we're wrong. We were we're asking them, please show us where we're wrong. But if we're right, then please let's let's consider. You know, we would need to change the posi- official position of the ministry. And so it wasn't until we entered into that process that we were actually able to clarify everything. Now we knew what was at stake was you know potentially we could have a significant change that I think could be great for the body of Christ and for you know, the members of that organization, but um, ultimately it got rejected, which is, which is fine. You know, it's like we, from the standpoint, it's fine from the standpoint of, I respect everybody's right to research the scriptures and come to their own conclusions. It doesn't mean I'm going to agree with them, but I will respect their right. They have to stand and, and account for, for what they do and what they teach. Would you say that this is a salvation issue in the sense that if somebody believes once saved, always saved, or the permanence of salvation, that that inherently endangers their salvation? Oh, I think there's an, there's absolutely an inherent, uh, many, many things that are problematic. I believe my, my personal ministry before the Lord is one, as a community builder, a protector of the, the body of Christ. I'm driven by, by unity, and I'm a church planner. And so given that, I have come to realize that there are two essential things in the body of Christ that are just not negotiable. 
One is concerning salvation, and the other one is, is teachings concerning sin. People can disagree concerning the nature of God or whether baptism is water or by the Spirit or, or whether speaking in tongues is available today or not and all these other things. And in spite of those differences, we still have an obligation to work with one another because there are only two justifiable reasons that I have been able to see in the Scripture to separate over. Because uh, because if Christ is able to work with Trinitarians and Baptists and all the others that are out there, then we have the obligation to do the same. He's demonstrating that. It's not that I'm not saying that truth and doctrine isn't important. It is. But love allows us to work together in spite of those differences. When it comes to salvation, I don't consider a perspective as once saved, always saved, or continuing in faith as necessarily the salvation message. There are understandings concerning the nature of salvation, and I believe that both teachings have tremendous ramifications, both for good or for bad. But the message of salvation is that salvation is through Christ alone, by God's grace, through faith. If someone is teaching any other salvation message other than that, then first, then first John chapter two verses twenty-two through twenty-four says that man's an antichrist, and as an antichrist, they will not enter the kingdom. So, to me, this is hugely important, and it's something that that I believe uh, continuing in faith has to get out. But I think it's a it's an understanding concerning the nature of salvation, not salvation itself. Right. In other words, somebody could believe in the permanence of salvation, and they could still be given eternal life in the resurrection. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think that uh, what it comes down to. What do I believe now? What's the conclusion of all my research? And I can summarize it very succinctly, that we have come to the place where we believe that at the moment that a person confesses the lordship of Christ and believing that he has been raised from the dead, they receive the promise of salvation. That's what the scriptures say. And at that moment, I do believe they received the gift of Holy Spirit, and it's given to them as a seal it, they're not sealed in the sense of a can. The seal is a word synonymous with that is a mark. It's a seal like a clay seal that was placed or like the, the scroll with seven seals in the book of Revelation. Right. One of the things I, I realized just as a footnote here is we were all taught that that seal can't be broken. Yet every place in scripture where the word seal is used, the seal is broken. The, seven, the scroll of seven seals is broken. The seal that was placed over the lion's den with Daniel in it was broken. You know, so so right away, it's like, no, that logic doesn't work. Seals, seals are to signify ownership and authority. Um, and so I believe when you confess Christ as your Lord, believe God raised from the dead, you receive the gift of Holy Spirit, and God places his seal, his mark on you. That's what the Holy Spirit is. The seal of the covenant with Abraham was circumcision. The seal of the new covenant is Holy Spirit. And God will keep his promise that you will be saved. It's a promise of salvation. And he keeps that to you, provided that you continue in the faith. And that salvation is by, is, is 100% by God's grace through faith. You cannot earn it, but you cannot lose it by bad works either. You can't earn it by good works. You can't lose it by bad works. But you can forfeit it. You can reject it. If you reject the Savior, you no longer are standing in faith. And so, therefore, you will not be ultimately saved. Would you say that the seal is 
a guarantee of what God's going to do, not necessarily a guarantee of what we're going to do. Yeah, it's not an unconditional guarantee by virtue of the fact that the scriptures say it's not con- it's not unconditional. You know, the any place where the word if is used, which is multiple, and then we start adding in all of the other explicit verses, it's clear it's not it's not unconditional. It's I, I liken it to an insurance contract. And there was a period of time in my life when I worked for an insurance company, and the insurance contract on page one says we insure you against all risks. You know, your house burns down, tornado comes through, whatever happens, we're going to insure you. And then you turn to page six and says, except for, see, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, I mean, we can't, once saved, always saved, permanence of salvation is a, is a position built on proof texting. For us to develop any solid doctrinal position, we have to see the entirety of what God is saying. And what we've done in our paper is we've shown the entirety going from Genesis to the book of Revelation. Now, dispensationalists want to try to say certain sections of the book don't apply to us and, you know, only these things. But the fact of the matter is there is a consistent theme. When Adam rebelled against God by rejecting his word and sinning, he lost his, quote, salvation or, you know, whatever that relationship with God was changed. Satan has done the same. People, People say, well, but you're a son of God, you know, so that can't, you can't become an unson. No, that's true, but you're using false logic. You're a son of God, but you can be destroyed because Satan will be destroyed. And just because you have the gift of Holy Spirit, it's not a sense of, okay, well, you have Holy Spirit, so therefore you're safe and you can do anything you want. No, you have Holy Spirit and you will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for what you did and how you lived with that great gift he's given to you. Uh-huh. And, if, and if you stand before him and say, you know, well, Lord, I, I totally rejected you then off to the lake of fire you're going to go and you will be extinguished. You're, you know, So that which is born can die. That which is created can be destroyed. You know, Just because you're a son doesn't mean you, that provides you safety. It, actually, the essence of it is you have a greater obligation because right. of your sonship, not a less. I want to read out a little statement you make in the paper on page 111. It says, The purpose of the Arabon, which is the word for pledge, is not to indicate an unconditional guarantee, but rather is a first part of the full payment that is to come, provided to give the believer assurance in continuing to persevere in their faith in the Lord. God's purchase and ultimate fulfillment of the promise of salvation is not independent of the believer's continued cooperation and fulfillment of their obligation to submit to His will. Why people can and often do use the Arabon references to mean that the believer has an unconditional guarantee of salvation. It is a guarantee only to those who continue in faith with loyalty and obedience to God. So this is saying, just like in a a workplace, if a boss says to you, hey, uh, your job is secure here. You don't have to worry about anything. Let's Let's say you're in sales. A lot of times in sales, in order to keep your job, you got to perform. And if you underperform enough months in a row and you don't hit the quotas, you're gone, right? So, uh, but what if the boss says to you, look, your job is guaranteed. I've guaranteed your job. You don't need to worry about anything. But then you go off and you commit sexual harassment on the secretary. You're going to get fired still. (laughs) 
Right. So it's like it, you're you're taking one statement and you're universalizing it, say and and concluding, oh, I can do anything I want. God has sealed me with the Spirit as a pledge and a guarantee of of the inheritance. So therefore, I can do whatever I want. Well, no, he he put that there as an indication of what he's going to do, but you still got to show up for payday, right? Yeah, I uh, the the thing that people struggle with is that those that 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 endorse the permanence of salvation commonly hear that what we're saying is you can lose your salvation because of sin. And I, I actually I don't believe you can. I believe Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to cover all our sin. So, I mean, we all sin. I sin, you sin, Sean, we all sin. There's a difference though between us sinning and someone who habitually embraces sin. And when I when that is a person who basically is saying that a, a, someone who habitually sins, as, as Hebrews speaks of, is someone who is rejecting God and God's ways. They're not standing in faith because faith would be a loyalty and an allegiance to God. I liken it to our allegiance to the United States of America. You know, as citizens of the U.S. or whatever country you happen to be in, people have a pledge of allegiance. Well, that means that when we make Jesus our Lord, we are pledging allegiance to Christ. When we sin intentionally and habitually, we're basically committing high treason. And that's, that's not something that will be tolerated. You don't lose your salvation because of sin, but you can lose your salvation because of the wicked heart that you have. It's a wicked heart that would be embracing habitual sin. And so I look at sin like I, I, in my mind, I, I, it's kind of like if when you sin, you're stepping on a slope that's covered by, say, snow or ice. If you continue to sin, you're gaining momentum on that slope. Right. That slope ends with a cliff. What you need to do is get off the slope, because if you continue to embrace sin, you're doing it because your heart is wicked. And we all have wickedness in our heart, but there's a difference. God has given us the Holy Spirit so that we would struggle against that sin. The point being that we would conform ourselves into the image of Christ. And as someone who has truly embraced the new covenant and wants to remain loyal and allegiant to it, we reject sin and we try to the best of our ability to pursue righteousness. And when we do sin, we demonstrate that our heart is right because we quickly confess it and repent of it and try to change our ways. Once saved, always saved does not give a person the incentive or the motive at, in, at a very basic level to get off a path of sin. Because what it says is your sin doesn't matter. It's, it's been forgiven. And what continuing in faith, our position says is your sin does matter. Don't step on the slope. If you're on the slope, do everything you, you can to get off. Because I, I have numerous examples from my personal life of people who have gone down a path of sin, not struggled to get out of it, not done what they need to do, whatever that may mean, pastoral care, counseling, deliverance, ministry, whatever. And they've continued to embrace it. And eventually it leads to a place of hard heartedness and ultimately could lead you to a place of apostasy. So I say people can never lose salvation because of sin, but don't discount sin because sin is evidence of the fruit. Sin is fruit. It's evidence of what's in your heart. 
If your heart is righteous and standing in allegiance to Christ, you will, you will be demonstrating that by good works. Well, you know, I demonstrate my faith by my good works. Let's see what you think of this analogy. Let's liken sin to poison, like arsenic. And by ingesting this poison, it doesn't kill you instantly. It's not like the moment you sin, you've now lost your salvation, and if you died in that moment, you would face the judgment of God. No, I don't think anybody believes that. But what you are saying is that sin is poisonous, is deadly, and if you ingest enough of it, at some point it can kill you. And yes, spiritually. Exactly. So is yes. that a, a good analogy? That's a, you think? Great, that's a great analogy because because there's a difference between having a sin. Sin is as as a. I liken it to say some sickness. You know, we all get sick. We all have a thing. You could get a cold and you can get over it. But if the sickness becomes systemic, meaning that the infection gets into the blood, now all of a sudden it can shut down the liver and all the other vital organs in your body. But just a bacterial affection alone doesn't do that. We can, we can get over that if you begin to eat healthy, take antibiotics, do whatever you need to do. But when it gets systemic, then it can kill the entire being. And so that's, that's the problem with sin. Why would you take arsenic knowing that, oh, a little bit, it's not going to hurt me. But how do you know when it's too much? You know, you've and been well, taking a little bit and ingesting it and you've been embracing it. And then all of a sudden something and I, and, I, and I know something clicks and shifts in the heart where a person says, I don't really care what God wants. I'm going to do what I want. And now you've entered into a wicked state of, of unbelief. That's like Hebrews 10, Hebrews 6. Exactly. Exactly. Let me ask you this. The old perspective you had was you believe you receive the spirit, you're saved. All hell can't stop you. That's uh, right. The new, the new perspective, it doesn't give you a clear line. And I think so many of us uh, just, maybe it's just our natural hearts, want to know, okay, well, how, how many sins can I do? And then it's too much. If somebody was going to ask you that question, how would you respond? Well, I, I ask people, or people ask me that exactly, and I said, you know, that's not something God never gives to us. We as humans always want to know, we always want to know the limits. Like, how much can I disobey before my disobedience is too much? You know, that's the wrong question to ask. You know, we shouldn't even be worried about the line. What we should be doing is if we truly made Jesus our Lord, we should be pursuing him with our whole heart, and we demonstrate our allegiance by the pursuit of holiness. And, and so, actually, I see the continuing in faith position that we have as a great motivator for people to, to embrace Christ, and they see that their faith is so much more important. It's not just a one-time event that happens. There, was, there is an event. That's why salvation is spoken of in the past, present, and future tense. There is a time where God does give you that promise, and he gives you the evidence and the, uh, of it by giving you the Holy Spirit. But it's not assured until, the, until it's over. And what I and people say, well, then can people sin so much that they can't repent and come back? Not until you're dead, because when you're dead, you're dead. So if, if, you're, if you're an atheist and have totally rejected Christ, even though at one point you had received the Holy Spirit, you can come back to Christ. But once you're dead, there's no returning from it God, because you're in a state of unbelief and God can't work with that. This is hugely important in a number of ways. Number one is 
when we teach the SIF position versus the OSAS, it gives people a genuine motivation to live a, a more righteous life. The permanence of salvation uh, camp will argue and say, well, see, they, they argue that the, your goodness and your walk is what earns you rewards, but that your salvation is guaranteed. We say, no, that's that's like trying to, you know, argue about a pension plan when you're not even going to, you know, the benefits of your pension plan, you're not even going to be alive to collect them. You know, it's we it's not this is not about just rewards. Rewards are part of the package, but this is about entrance into the kingdom. And so I believe OSAS decreases the seriousness of the need to continue in faith because it just makes it about rewards. And I also believe that that if we're teaching people once saved, always saved, and they actually at some point go down a sin path and forfeit their salvation, those who have taught that will be held to account. Christ says clearly that those who teach are held to a higher standard. Yeah. So that's that has a huge ramification. And the other thing that I think is huge as we look forward to the future, we can see what's happening in society and the aggressive attitudes against Christianity and also the compromises that are made within the body of Christ. And Paul warned that there will be coming a day when there's a great falling away, a great apostasy towards those latter days. And this is a message that has to get out that the body of Christ has to realize that their faith is not something to mess around with. Their loyalty and allegiance to Christ is not something to take for granted. You have to continue in the faith because if you are presented with a scenario where you need to take a mark of, of the beast or something in order to trade or sell or, or whatever, your salvation could be at stake. Well, it actually now, says, it says that those who receive his mark, they face the wrath of God. They, it does now. Right? Yeah, it absolutely does. Now, the problem is dispensationalists say, hey, you know, there's going to be a rapture. We don't have to worry about that. Oh, right, right. Well, well, I've I've actually, you know, entered into dialogue. My partner that I used to work with, who is a dispensationalist and believes in a pre-tribulation rapture, openly admitted that it is a position. It's an implicit position. It's not an explicit. And, the, and in fact, the timing of the rapture uh, was something that got me to understand, to really see the difference between um, that those things which are implied and those things which are clearly or explicitly stated. Yeah, absolutely. and so that whole rapture teaching is is a teaching based on implication. Well, I mean, dispensationalism, permits of salvation, and pre-tribulation rapture tend to go together, and if, if one of them falls, all three tend to fall together. But I just wanted to add a little note, my own personal walk here, which is that uh, as a young man growing up with the same beliefs that you've described here, I concluded in my heart that since I had said Romans 10, 9, and 10, I was saved, and, and no matter what I did, I was going to be fine with God. So as a result of that, I was extremely rebellious. I sinned a lot and didn't even feel bad about it. And it was a, uh, a false confidence in the permanence of salvation that I, I can't blame as, like, the, the only cause of what I did, but it was certainly complicit in my destructive behavior. And don't think you know much about my story, Dan, but I got academically dismissed from my first college. Uh, I was drinking a lot. Uh, I was a, a womanizer. I mean, there, were, there was a, uh, a lot of 
relationally destructive behaviors that I engaged in, and only only when I cried out to God did He save me. But yet, the whole time I thought I was saved. You know what I mean? So it made it harder to cry out to God because it's like, well, I'm fine with God. And so th- there is a real complicity there. And there was actually a murderer named George Sodini who attended, I think it was a, a evangelical church, and he wrote a little uh, journal online. And in his journal, he said, the, the preacher said that no matter what I do, even if I kill somebody, I can't do anything to destroy my salvation. And then he went into a fitness club and murdered a bunch of women working out, and then he killed himself too. And right. Now, that doesn't mean that people who believe in once saved, always saved are mass murderers, but it, it does mean it, it should raise our suspicion if the fruit of the tree is partially wicked and partially good. Right. Maybe that tree needs to be rethought. And whereas what you're talking about here, continuous in faith, now I have motivation, now I, now I take sin seriously, like the, right. the way that God takes it seriously. And, right. <clears throat> but then there's the other side of it where people might say to you, well, what about your anxiety or assurance? And how would, how would you respond to that whole issue as it comes up? Because if somebody has already believed once saved, always saved, they're very confident in their salvation. And now you're saying, well, hold on, there's a slippery slope over there. Watch out. They might be totally obsessing or worrying, oh, did I, have I gone too far, you know, and all this. So how would you uh, counsel somebody in that situation? Well, I think there's one theme that is in the um, Word of God that many people, in fact, years ago, I, I, I was addressing it because it became problematic for me, and that is the fear of God. And when you when you t- teach that once saved, always saved, and it doesn't matter, and you can go off, and, and in fact, I, I actually challenged you know my coworker and said, essentially, that what's once saved, always saved is saying is that an antichrist can enter into the kingdom. And that's ridiculous. You know, someone who yeah. you're saved, but then you reject and actually work against Christ. You know, the, an antichrist in 1 John 2, 22 is, to, is uh, defined as someone who denies the father and the son. That's an antichrist. So here's someone who's been taught once saved, always saved, but now they're an antichrist. But then we're supposed to think that this unrighteous person is going to enter the kingdom because of a one-time event when they were 10 years old at a youth event. And so what I tell people is, listen, if you have reason to not have confidence, that only reason is because you're doing something that's wrong. And, you know, I mean, I don't I, I don't have any lack of assurance and because I know that I'm pursuing Christ with all my heart and I know that when I sin, I readily confess my sin and I know he's faithful and just and will forgive me my sins. And so that, you know, so I have total, complete confidence and I believe that, yeah, once saved, always saved for those that continue in the faith. So if you are lacking confidence, then my question would be, what is it that's causing you to lack confidence? Because it's certainly not if you're loyal and allegiant to Christ and trying to do your best that you would lack any confidence. That's the message of Scripture, that God has given you a promise, a guarantee of salvation, provided you're continuing in the faith. Right, right. And Jesus himself said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So if we want to confess Jesus is Lord, the confession needs to be met with the lifestyle 
that corresponds with it as opposed to just words spoken without meaning. If we are going to say Jesus is Lord, then we have to do what he says. And that doesn't mean that we are now saving ourselves by obedience, but it does mean that obedience matters to God and it matters to Christ. Like that famous text in Ephesians 2, that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. But then in the very next verse, it talks about how we are ordained for good works, that God ordains us for good works. So salvation's purpose is not so that you can sin without guilt. Salvation's purpose is that you could be righteous and be part of what God's doing in our world. So I really appreciate that perspective, Dan. Let me ask just one last question here. Let me just say this too, though, Sean. We're not saved by our obedience, but our obedience demonstrates that we are saved. Yes, yes. Let me ask one more question. Uh, I'm just looking through this paper, 114 pages, single-spaced, 8.5 by 11. What has the reception been since this paper's been out? You mentioned that you had sent it out to a lot of people. What have people been saying? Well, I really, I really was surprised. You know, we wrote it not with the intent of necessarily publishing it in this way. We actually feel that the paper in itself is not complete, and we want to take a step back and um, and add those 50, 60 more pages with appendices and stuff so that we could publish it as a book. But people knew that it was out there, so many have approached. I've probably sent a couple, maybe two, 300 of them out there. The reception that I've gotten has been phenomenal from the standpoint of uh, people are seeing the logic of it. And I'm the people that I've sent it out are in the once saved, always saved camp. And uh, so there's been, I would say, the majority of people are accepting it. The There are, of course, a number of people that aren't. And what I have found, and I can't really think of any exception. The people that reject it, primarily, I find that they're rejecting it on an emotional basis, not on the logic or what the scripture is actually saying. And they're not actually able to articulate or fight against it other than, you know, someone said to me the other day, well, well, I just believe when you're born of God, you're really born of God. And I said, well, do you do you recall going through a gestational process? Do you recall? (laughs) Do you recall coming out of the womb of God? Because you didn't, that means it's not literal, it's a metaphor. And if it's a metaphor, it's God is is writing it in all these other descriptive terms, because what he has done is so great, he has to describe it from multiple angles. Yes. Well, and then they said, well, I just believe something really literally happened. I said, well, something literally did happen, but you weren't born. It's a metaphor. Right. It means you have a new life. It means you have a new life. And in fact, if you go back and read those sections, the emphasis is always on the uh, the newness of life, the new nature. And so I would say that the overwhelming response that I've gotten has, has been very significant. People have embraced it. And I've also found that those who embrace it are embracing the lifestyle of holiness. And, and, and I've had some phenomenal letters and people have just essentially said, Thank you so much. I was taking my faith for granted. I'm never going to do that again. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, I also want to just direct the listener to chapter 7 in this, uh, in this essay because, well, it's really a book. I mean, let's be honest. It's an e-book. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> chapter 7 in here has an examination of the OSAS, the once saved, always saved position. And it goes through a lot of these scriptures as well as analogies 
the born again, the adoption, new creation, citizenship, sealed with the spirit, and all this. And it handles each one of them. So if you are listening to this, you're coming from a permanence of salvation or eternal security point of view. And maybe some of what we've said here is piquing your interest, but you're like, yeah, but what about this verse? Or what about that verse? I encourage you to check out, especially chapter 7 there, but really the whole, the whole paper altogether. How, how can people get a hold of this, Dan? Um, all they have to do is email me, Sean. It's uh, real simple. It's uh, DJ Gallagher, spelled G-A-L-L-A-G-H-E-R-777 at gmail.com. Just request the paper, and, uh, and you know, usually I, I'm pretty quick on sending it out. I would like to say in Chapter 7, the reason we included that is in every book that I've read, uh, you know, I, Howard Marshall, Kept by the Power of God, and all these others, they make some very good arguments for why salvation isn't permanent, but none of them specifically addressed the uh, OSAS arguments that are traditional. And uh, a friend of mine, when we began to write the paper, he said to me, well, I'd be happy to read the paper, but the, the error I found is no one can properly argue against the permanence of salvation position. I believe that we did that, and uh, uh, you know, one of the co-authors said to me, "Not only did we argue against it, I believe we annihilated the position." Uh, <laughs> and you know, and I think that you know, it's a little hyperbole in there. It doesn't mean everybody uh, accepts it, and uh, like I said, most people. What I'm finding is emotional reasons. It's not logical. It's not scriptural. It's it, they're hanging on to it emotionally because some people have a loved one who's walked away or a child or some other thing, and they just refuse to want to accept that salvation is possibly in jeopardy for that person or something else. Right, right. So, Excellent. Right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, this has been great. I really appreciate it. My privilege. Thank you, Sean. Well, that's it for this interview. If you would like to email Dan, I've got his email address on the show notes for this episode, which you can get at restitudio.org. Just search for interview 33, Can You Lose Your Salvation, or in your app on your phone or tablet. Also, his ministry is called Lean on Jesus, and I've got links for his podcast, YouTube channel, Facebook, and his main website is leanonjesus.com which at the time of this recording is still under construction, but it looks like it's coming out soon. If you enjoyed this episode or you think it's something that is a word that needs to get out for other people, then please share this on social media, on whatever it is you use. Let people know about this because it's not every day that somebody, after 46 years of holding to a belief, changes it because of the weight of Scripture on that subject. So I think this is just huge. Let's get the word out about this. This is something that I've changed my mind on as well, and I think that if you look at the verses, you'll see it as clear as day. Also, I just wanted to read out a couple of recent comments from two previous interviews. Interview 31 with Bill Schlegel about his own recent change of belief to a biblical Unitarian position from a Trinitarian position has received a number of comments from several folks, but I just wanted to read out a couple of recent ones that just came in this past week. Here's a comment from Arnulfo. He writes, I've been to a couple of Shepherds conferences with Pastor John MacArthur, and there are some issues I don't agree with him on because his church that he attends now, Spanish church, embraces everything he teaches. But now I don't know how long I will be at this church because I am moving away from the Trinity Beliefs since about eight months ago. 
Believe it or not, the elder at our church announced in a church service about Bill Schlegel defecting from the faith. But when he said that, my wife, my mother-in-law, and I just looked at each other. I had been praying to the Lord about God the Son or Son of God for a while when I heard my elder say what he said about you, Bill. I got encouraged and excited that the Lord had responded in this manner. Please give me a word of advice on how to go about all this. Thank you and press on. God bless you and your family. Uh, so it looks like this message has gotten out that uh, the fact that Bill got fired for changing his beliefs on the Trinity is now something that is percolating out into the churches in California as well. And hey, whatever whatever your background is or your current position is, I think go ahead and listen to this interview because you'll hear that Bill is not some wacko. He's not a heretic. He's not promoting some weird doctrine. He's trying to be biblical. He's not trying to be controversial. He didn't even want to make an issue of the whole thing and just tried to resign. They're the ones that made an issue out of it and really pushed him to defend himself, and that's what he has done here. So take a look at that in Interview 31. Also, Greg Dibel. Hey, Greg of Australia, who wrote the book, They Never Told Me This in Church. He writes, Wonderful interview and a real encouragement from a genuine truth seeker committed to the authority of the scriptures and our exalted messianic Lord Jesus. I have posted this around already. Thanks, Sean, and thanks, Bill. Thanks so much for writing in, Greg. I hope we can cross paths again at a theological conference or something else if you uh, come visit stateside again. On interview 32, which was the one from last week, with John Truitt about virtual fellowship, we received a number of brief comments there. Kim writes, uh, thanks for the information. God bless your day. Brian says, glad this system is working for some people. On another note, I'm digging the new intro music to the podcast. Thank you, Brian, for the mention there. Sean writes, interesting to see this growing. I didn't expect to see such a decent size, meaning good for dialogue but not too large, virtual fellowship group. We may have to check this out to get some others to speak with and gain more connections since we haven't really had anyone in a while around to speak with about the Bible. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for writing in about this. I think it was a really helpful interview, especially if you live outside an area where there is a fellowship or a church or a community. It's, it's something that you really should avail yourself of. Check that out if you haven't already. Interview 32, Virtual Fellowship for Isolated Believers. Thanks for everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.